If you don't know, my name is Bob Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be talking this morning in Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. So if you get your Bibles out and follow along, it, it, it'll help you a lot. I'm going to be flying through that. There are 80 verses or so, 78, someone told me. So we, we're not going to read every one of those, just 77 of them. No, not really. Um, but I, I, I want you to have that in front of you. We're going to show some of them on the screen. We're going to be reading portions of that, but just a, a few portions of it. For the most part, we're just going to run through that scripture. We're going to be looking back in history at an event that took place when the nation of Israel... The nation of Israel had been in Egypt. They were slaves 400 years. Uh, they were miraculously freed from slavery. And they, God led them uh, out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea as the Egyptians were following them. If you remember that story, put a pillar of cloud before them, a pillar of fire uh, at night led them, a pillar of cloud in the daytime led them. It's just that was reminded of uh, the song we were singing, I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind. God led them through the wilderness. And now they come to a place right outside this place called the Promised Land. And it was called that because God had promised it to them, actually to their forefather Abraham, many, many, many years ago. And they're, around, they're finally ready as a nation to go in and take the Promised Land. And that's where we pick up the story in Numbers 13 and 14. The people here have an important decision to make. And it was a difficult decision because the circumstances they were facing were difficult. The Lord's brought me back to this passage over and over again in my life as I've faced difficult decisions, difficult circumstances. When I had to make hard choices, I come back to this over and over again. Because it's a reality in the lives of Christians that there will be problems. There will be difficulties. That's, that's a certainty, no matter who we are, whether we're believers or not. So I want to walk through these chapters, and I want us to glean some principles that'll help us when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. We're going to look at four principles this morning. And I make it hard on you, you've got to write them down. I don't print them out for you like Denny. It's because Denny keeps you awake, and I'm afraid, it, you know, if you just look at it, you might nod off if I'm speaking. So if you have a pen in your hand, at least it's more dangerous for you to fall asleep. So four principles we'll look at this morning, Okay. Again, it's important to remember they're about to go into this land that had been promised to them long before. So what happens is in the first 25 chapters, excuse me, the first 25 verses, they send spies into the land, 12 spies. And they check out the land and they come back and they give a report. And we're going to read that report. They actually bring some of the fruit of the land with it. There's a, uh, one of the things says there's a cluster of grapes that was so large, two men had to carry it on a pole between them. And actually, Ron asked me this morning, were you going to get a pole and have someone carry out some grapes with you? I said, no, but maybe next time we'll do that. It's a good idea. So they bring some fruit, but here's the report of the land. 27, verse 27 to 33. I'd love you to follow along with me as I read this, because we're going to really be spending some, uh, a few minutes talking about these verses, okay? Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Anak was a huge man. He was a giant. So they saw his descendants. And then they say the Amalekites lived here. They tell where different people live. They say the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. 
But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, again, giants. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So verse 37, 27, they come, they give this account. The land does flow with milk and honey, they say. But, in verse 28, they say there are some problems as well. There's some problems in the land. There were three specific problems. First of all, the people were strong. Secondly, the cities were large and fortified. And third, there were giants in the land. Those are certainly problems and serious problems. If that was a land you wanted to go in and, and take over, those are some major obstacles that you had to, to overcome. There are two spies, however, that see the situation differently, see it from a different perspective, Joshua and Caleb. In verse 30, Caleb says, as I just read, he silenced the people and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. And then the ten spies begin to speak again in verses 31 to 33. What I want to do is compare the words from their, their, their report in 27, 28, and 29, and then Caleb speaks, and then I'm going to compare what they say in verses 31, 32, and 33. See, what's happening here is there's a bit of a debate going on. The ten spies speak, and clearly that had the crowd in a bit of an uproar because it says Caleb silenced the people and said we should go up. And then the ten spies begin to speak again. So let's, let's look at what they say in verses 27 and 28, and then look at what they say in verses 31 to 33. I'll just walk you through that. Certainly in verse 27, they say it's a land that flows with milk and honey. They don't mention that at all uh, in verses 31 to 33. In verse 28, they say, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are large and fortified. Yep, those are facts. That was true. But look at what they say in verse, uh, in verse 32. Excuse me. Yes, in verse 32. They say, the land we explored devours those living in it. Well, that's not true. That's a lie. In fact, in verse 32, it says that they spread a bad report about the land. They gave a bad report. That word bad really means false. They, they began to lie in these verses to try to persuade the people. That's what that word means. They, they gave a bad report. It was a false report. So in one place, they say, we saw some giants. Here they say, uh, here they say uh, sorry, they say their people were strong. Here they say the land devours its people. Think about it. How is that possible? If the land devoured its people, there wouldn't be any people there. It would be perfect for them. They could just walk in. They're just making an argument, but they're not telling the truth. Then in verse 32, um, it says, all the people we saw there are of great size. In verse 28, they said, hey, we saw some descendants of Anak there. We saw some giants. Okay. But in 32, they say all the people are of great size. Well, that's not true. All of the people were not of great size. In fact, we know that because years later when Joshua takes the people into the land, not all of them are giants. There's lots of regular people there. They're lying. And then some, a fascinating uh, verse in verse 33, the end of that says, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. We look the same to them. Isn't it amazing that they knew how the people viewed them? Obviously, they didn't really know that. They're making that assumption. What these verses tell us really is that 
something very clear is, is happening here. The spies are afraid. The spies are afraid of the people in the land and the situation they found. And so they begin to lie. They don't want the people to go in. They don't think they can do it. Basically, they focus on the circumstances. They focus on what they see. And then they look at themselves and they, they come to this conclusion that says, you know, we, we can't do this. This is too big a task for us. We cannot get it done. They are convinced they can't win the battle. And so, unfortunately, they lie to Moses and Aaron and the Israelites. And even more unfortunately, the Israelites listen. And they do not enter this land that God had promised to them years earlier. They hear this slanted report, this false report from the spies, the ten spies. And they, 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 they focus on the, the, the people of great strength, the, the, the people of a great size, the, the large cities. And then they look at themselves and they think, we can't win the fight. We can't do it. They forget about the fact that God has been leading them with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He's actually provided manna for them every day in the wilderness. They forget about all that. And they come to a rather obvious conclusion without him in the equation that we can't win a fight against these people. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 14, Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. It says this, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, these are amazing verses. They want to go back to Egypt, where they had spent 400 years in slavery. In fact, they've been crying out to God to save them for 400 years, and he does, and he leads them miraculously out, and he brings them to this place, and now they actually want to go back. As they focus on their current situation, in the promised land, they start to think, you know, maybe Egypt wasn't so bad after all. It's amazing, isn't it? The truth is, that leads me to my first principle that I want to share with you. The first principle is comparison can cause us to lose contentment. Comparison can cause us to lose contentment. One of the reasons this is true is because the comparison that we make just like the Israelites, it's often selective and unrealistic. The Israelites look back, and, and, and earlier in the passage in Numbers, it says you know, they longed for the leeks, which are like onions, leeks and garlic and fish that they ate in Egypt. You know, they're wanting to go back in these wonderful times in Egypt, but they forget they were slaves in Egypt. They just focus on, hey, the food we had back then was good, so we should go back, even though the food really wasn't that good. That's what they think. They, they have selective memory. They had cried out for him, save us. He did. Now they're crying out, let's go back. You know, it's one thing to forget some of the, some specific realities of our past and sort of selectively think things are better 
um, than they used to be in the past. But that, that things were really not as good as, as they are now. Sometimes we, we look at our memory and we, we, again, it's selective. And actually research has shown that. That's why it's that romanticized view of our past. Sometimes we have that. But, I mean, forgetting that you were in slavery for 400 years, that seems pretty amazing, doesn't it? And, and it's easy sometimes when I read this passage to think, I mean, can you, can you believe those Israelites that want to go back to slavery? I mean, they've forgotten all God's done for them, and it's just not appropriate. I mean, what kind of people are they that they would want to do that? But, you know, it doesn't take long for me as I begin to ponder that, really, to realize that all too often we respond in a similar manner. I know that I do at times in my life. When I'm in the midst of, a, of an unpleasant or a difficult or just simply an unwanted situation or circumstance in my life, sometimes I begin to look back at a time in my life when things were simpler. You ever heard that? When things were better. And I can start to, to compare what I have, what my situation is now compared to how I remember it being in the past. Or I can certainly compare my situation with someone else's situation. And I can begin to lose contentment. I can begin to be dissatisfied with my life and with what I'm facing. Because I romanticize the past, just like the Israelites do. Certainly when, when we compare our, our lives to someone else's, it's easy to look at that other person's life and think, boy, I wish I had that situation and not my own. But the truth is, we only know a very small portion of their lives, of their life. We don't know what they're going through either. I think a, a good example is a lot of times financially, we'll look at, I'll look at someone and think, well, gee, if I had their finances, my life would be so much better. Well, not necessarily. Their life may be very, very difficult. They may be dealing with circumstances we could never imagine. But we can pick out that one thing and think, well, if I had that, wouldn't that be great? Comparison can cause us to lose contentment. Of course, the main issue we talked about a couple weeks ago isn't that, is that God hasn't promised me a wonderful, problem-free, carefree existence, has he? That's not his desire for us at all. It's not that he doesn't want us to enjoy life. He, he does. But what's really the main purpose for, for God is that it, it's not here and now. Remember, he has an eternal perspective. He desires that I grow mature in my walk with him, and he's not concerned that I have a problem-free existence on the short period of time that I have on this planet. He's more concerned with my eternity and where I'll spend it. And the truth is, he's called me to be content in him, not in my circumstances. He knows that my circumstances are always going to change, they're always going to be in flux, but he will never change. He's the same yesterday, today. And forever. So comparison can cause us to lose contentment. As we look at the Israelites and their response, it brings me to a second principle as well that I want to bring to your attention. Principle number two is that our worries weaken our ability to trust God. Our worries weaken our ability to trust God. The Israelites became so focused on their circumstances and they became fearful that, uh, and worried about what would happen if they went into the land because of the report they heard from the ten spies that really they lost their ability to trust God. That's what took place here in this episode. They were worried about dying and they were worried specifically about their wives and children, it says, becoming plunder, being taken from them. You know, the number one thing that people worry about, this isn't scientific, this is just my personal experience. 
So you can't argue with it, I guess. But I really think the number one thing that people worry about, it's not money, it's not job, it's not status, it's not respect. If you, if you, the, the number one thing that people lose sleep over, the number one thing that if in a prayer meeting or a group of people we say, how can we pray for you, that comes up over and over and over again is their children, their family, over and over again. And the Israelites here were concerned about their children, about their family, about their wives. You remember how nervous you were if you had this experience when your child first got on the bus to go to school? Okay, you know, when they get to like 10th grade, you don't even know when they leave the house and when they come back. But, you know, when they're that young, you remember that? You remember the first time maybe that they had to go into the hospital for surgery, have tonsils out or something like that? I mean, we're, we're concerned about that. Move on in life. How about when they first started dating? Anybody remember that? You haven't been there yet, but it's coming, I'm telling you. And what about when they, they're, they're, you remember how nervous you were when they're trying to pick a college? We're trying to decide what career path to go down. I mean, we're concerned about our children. How about when they call and say, I found the right one, I'm going to get married. I haven't had that experience yet. Okay? What were your thoughts, if you're a parent here, when you laid your head on the pillow and you knew that your daughter was about to give birth any, any moment, any day, with your first grandchild? Were you calm, laid back, no problem, didn't care? Probably not. We're concerned about our children. And I know many of you don't have children, but... You, again, we're concerned with our brothers, our sisters, our husbands, our wives, our mothers, our fathers. Family is so important. And it was very important to the Israelites. Very important. So, and, and that's fine. That's good. It's, it's appropriate, right? The problem, though, the problem comes when we begin to focus so much on them. And we desire so much to protect them and keep them safe and keep them from harm and keep them from pain that we begin to worry and worry about them. And that worry adversely affects our ability to trust God. And that's what happened to the Israelites. The truth for them and the truth for you and me is that God is in control. We are not. And he's trustworthy. We can trust him. See, in spite of all the Israelites had seen God do, again, this miraculous journey from Egypt, being led by the pillars uh, of cloud and fire, being given bread, they decided that the, that the difficulties that they could see in front of them in the promised land were too big for God. He couldn't do it. He couldn't overcome. And the truth is, he was the only one who could have overcome those circumstances and those difficulties. So our worries weaken our ability to trust God. It's certainly very important for us to note that there were two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who had a different view, a different perspective. Look at verses 7 and 8 of Numbers 14. And they, Joshua and Caleb, said to the entire assembly, The land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. And when you first read this and compare it to what the ten spies said, I kind of feel like maybe the twelve spies went into the land and ten of them took a right and Joshua and Caleb took a left. Maybe they're in a different place because it doesn't sound the same. They're saying, God will give it to us. Let's go up and take it. But it's interesting and it's important to note this. Joshua and Caleb never deny anything that the other spies said. They never say, you know, the people really aren't that strong. 
They never say, you know, really the cities aren't really that fortified. They never say there aren't any giants in the land. They don't mention those things at all. They don't, they don't say it. They just, they saw the exact same things that those spies saw, but they respond differently. They react differently. Why? The ten spies, they focus on the circumstance. They look at the people, they look at the cities, and then they look at themselves and they think in comparison to that, we're nothing. And the truth is, they were right. In comparison to those forces that were there in that land, they were nothing. But what about Joshua and Caleb? They looked at the same forces, the same fortified cities, the same giants, the same strong people. And, but instead of then focusing on themselves, they focused on God. And they knew he was bigger and stronger than those cities and those giants and the people in the land. And that enabled them to respond in a different way. A completely different way. Their vision leads me to my next principle. Principle number three is this. Eyes of faith factor God in. Eyes of faith factor God in. Read verse 9 with me of Numbers 14. They factored God into the equation, and they realized something. Look at verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. That's what Joshua and Caleb say after seeing the exact same things that the other spies see. Their eyes of faith showed them there was more to the story than they were actually able to see with their natural eyes. The protection had been removed from the people. We know that because 40 years from now, when Joshua takes the people into the land, they're able to take the land. The people were, were terrified of the Israelites. God had removed the protection from the people of the land, but only Joshua and Caleb could see it because of their eyes of faith because they factor God into the equation. The truth of the matter is for Joshua and Caleb, it didn't matter the circumstance. Really, how many people there were, how strong they were, it was unimportant. God had promised them the land. That's all that was important to them. And that's true faith. True faith. They believed their eyes of faith, not their natural eyes. Let me ask you this. What do you think would have happened if the spies had come back and they would have said something like this? We went into the land, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And not only that, we saw that the people in the land are, are, are quite weak, actually. And the cities, there's no walls around them. There's almost no guards. Not only that, we saw a lot of descendants of dwarves there. There's a lot of really small people in that land. What do you think the people would have said? I think they would have said, praise God. He's given us the land. Let's go up and take it. Isn't that wonderful? Praise him. You see, no walls around cities and dwarves, that's one thing. But giants, it's a different story altogether. Unfortunately, the Israelites don't take the land. They don't go in. And as, as a result, they sin. They don't obey God. We're going to look at the results of that in just a moment. I want you to know that it's, it's important for you and I to have eyes of faith so that we can see God at work. 
So often we find ourselves in difficult situations. We find ourselves in tough times. And, and we need eyes of faith to see the true reality of what's happening, just like Caleb and Joshua saw the true reality. Remember, they didn't see anything different than the other spies with their natural eyes, but they could see with their eyes of faith. And so they demonstrated that third principle, eyes of faith factor God in. So because of the report of the spies, Numbers 14 really, the rest of it tells a horrible story. They rebel against the Lord and against the leadership, and actually they're getting ready to stone Caleb and Joshua. And it says that the glory of the Lord appeared and everything stopped. And God tells them that the very thing that they were afraid of, that they would be devoured by the land, that's what the spies said, the very thing they were afraid of, he's going to make happen to them. There's grave consequences, and that's the fourth and last principle that I want us to look at. Principle number four is sin can cause colossal consequences. Sin can cause colossal consequences. God causes, causes the ten spies who went into the land to die immediately by a plague. And then he tells the people that anyone over the age of 20 will not enter the promised land. No one over the age of 20. Those are grave consequences of sin. But there's more than that. This episode points out a very important thing. Sometimes we suffer consequences for our sin. Sometimes we suffer consequences of someone else's sin. You see, not only did the 10 spies die and the, the Israelites, everyone over 20, wasn't able to enter the land, but their children, who should have had an opportunity to go into the promised land and, and live and grow up there, had to spend 40 years in the desert before they could have an opportunity to go into the land. They also paid an enormous price. The truth is that sometimes uh, we suffer consequences for the sin of other people. Other people's sin cause us consequences. I heard uh, Andy Stanley speak about this issue at one point, and he said this, and I love the way he put it. He said, sometimes our proximity to people who sin cause us to get hit from the shrapnel of their lives. It's painful. It's difficult. But it happens. And can I take a moment and say that's why it's so important that we choose our friends wisely. We choose who we spend time with wisely. We spend where we go and what we do, we, we choose those things wisely. Because being in the proximity of people who are living a life of sin, even if we aren't, being around them, at some point, we can get hit with shrapnel from their lives. And it's painful. It may be here this morning that you're, you're here this morning and, and sin has caused consequences in your life. And it may not even be your sin. It's causing it. But I want you to know that God's made a way for forgiveness. And he does restore. And he does comfort. If you're in the midst of suffering those consequences, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'll be here as well as others. I do want to remind you of something very, very important, however. Even if you're in the midst of consequences of sin that, that you've committed, God still doesn't leave you. God still stays with you. In the midst 
of the consequences of your sin. You know, he, he tells the Israelites, you're going to be in the desert for 40 years, but he doesn't leave them. The pillar of cloud, still there. Pillar of fire at night, it's still there. He gives them manna and, and supplies all their needs, even in the midst of the consequences of their sin. God will never leave you. Hebrews 13.5 says, he will never leave you, never forsake you. It doesn't matter if you've sinned or not. That's still a promise. So we've looked at those four principles. Real quickly, comparison can cause us to lose contentment. Our worries weaken our ability to trust. Eyes of faith factor God in, and sin can cause colossal consequences. Is there one of those that sticks out to you? One of you that maybe God's talking to you about? You know, I just encourage you. If, you, if he's speaking to you about one of those, if one of those is, is, uh, is sticking out to you and, and, and you're not sure what to do, you know, what I'd ask you to do is pray. Ask, ask God for help. Ask him to bring contentment to you by not comparing yourself with others. Maybe you need to ask him for, for help in removing the worry that you're struggling with and that he'll give you eyes of faith so that you can trust him. And again, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness of sin or restoration from the consequences of sin that they're, they're, they're causing in your life, even if it wasn't your own sin. I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I do know this. He not only knows what you're going through, but just like the giants in the land and the fortified cities, he is bigger and stronger than anything you're facing in your life. And he wants to come alongside you and help you and come to your aid. So I want you to leave this morning with that encouragement. But I also want to encourage you to come forward if you need to pray or even as you leave this week, pray, ask God for his help in your life in these areas. Thanks so much for being here. Glad you're here this morning. Have a good week.